We begin um, this next section of Samuel, these chapters 8 to 10, with something of a, a bit of deja vu and a bit of a conundrum. Because it turns out that Samuel's two boys, his two sons, like Eli's two boys, have turned out bad. Did you catch that at the beginning? Verse 1, 8 verse 1, when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of the firstborn was Joel, the second was Abijah. They served at Beersheba. And then catch this, verse 3, but his sons did not follow his ways. They, they turned aside after dishonest gain and they accepted bribes and perverted justice. So the conundrum is, what do you do again about future leadership? The elders of the people decide Joel and Abijah, and then they can't do it. So who can do it? And so verse 5, they ask for a king to rule over them, to lead them. It's actually literally judge, if you can see the little footnotes at the bottom there. Which There's an irony. The king is going to come and judge them, but the king will actually be God's judgment against them. Now, before we jump into the passage, and there's a lot to cover, as you've seen, um, I want to just back up a bit and remind you of this idea of kingship in the Bible that we've already had a number of times. It's already reared its head in Scripture, but I want to go back to Deuteronomy. Do you remember, before the people get into the land... Moses is there, three sermons on the edge of the land, and he speaks to them of the fact that they will want a king in the years to come. He foresees this. He knew it would come. And so it's in chapter Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. Let me read that bit to you. When you enter the land, says Moses, the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. And then Moses outlines various stipulations for this kind of king that will come. He's to be the king that the Lord chooses for them. He's to be an Israelite. He's not to acquire a great amount of, of wealth or stuff, horses, silver, gold. He's, he's not to acquire many wives. And, and get this, he is to write out all the words of the law. He's to copy out himself, um, his own version of the Bible. You see, if they must have a king, he must be a king who guards his heart. To be careful not to be captive, taken advantage of by greed or by other gods, but rather ruled by the word of God. If they're to have a king, he's to lead them in such a way that God would lead them. His wisdom, his priorities. And so here in Samuel this morning, here we get that passage from Deuteronomy worked out. Here is Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 onwards, in action. And so they're settled in the land, we've said. There's this leadership crisis on one hand. Samuel's sons can't do it. Who's going to do it? But on the other hand, they ask for a king because, verse 5... Because they want to be like everyone else. Come with me to chapter 8 if you've closed it. And we'll see the first thing. Um, 8 verse 1 to 9 to 19 or to 9. I may have maybe a typo. I think we'll go 19. The problem with the king. And I think there are at least three problems that you see in this passage with the king. The first thing very clearly, is that their desire for a king is a rejection of God as king. So Israel was meant to be a theocracy. That's the kind of technical term. The, the priests and the prophets, I take it, were meant to lead the people of God because they represented God, they spoke for him. 
And so now they want a king like the nations. And so at root, they are rejecting their leader. They are rejecting God. They are saying God is not enough. We want a person to rule over us, God, because you are not enough. And so you pick that up in verse 7. The Lord told him, listen, to all that the people are saying to you, it is not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king, as they've done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me, serving other gods. So they are doing that to you, Samuel. You see, that the nature of our rebellion and sin, whatever it is, is to get rid of the rule of God from us, to ignore his word. That is their track record, that is their history, that is what they do. In one sense, that is us as well. And so as they ask for a king, they're not just, it's not just a question of replacing Samuel. In one sense, it's a question of replacing God himself. So that's the first problem. It's the rejection of God. The second The second is that kings come with strings attached. I'm going to read from verse 11 to 17. um, And I want you to see if you can spot a a repeated word. I'll give you a clue. It it starts off kind of by itself, and then we get it again and again and again. So if you're kind of trying to work it out and you can't see, then um, be patient until about verse 13, then maybe you'll get it. Um, But verse 11... He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plough his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to, be, to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. I always give it away, don't I? But he will take. Kings take, 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 take. With the king comes responsibilities towards that king. There are taxes involved He warns them of that, and he warns them of what their response will be. Verse 18, you will cry out for relief from this king you have chosen, but the people refuse to listen to Samuel. No, they say, we want a king over us. Then we shall be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. So ultimately, there's a rejection of God. Then comes the strings attached, but then finally as well, the final problem, I take it, is the desire to be like the nations. Do you remember the people of God? They are to to live in a distinctive, different way, to show the watching world how beautiful God is, how good he is, how kind he is, so that the people looking in will think, wow, wow, I'd love to serve a God like that. It's a good place to live, to be under his rule. It's the life we were made for. We're to be distinctive and different, and yet here the whole decision, the whole premise, hangs off the fact that they want to be like everyone else. They, they want to blend in. Now, to be fair to them, and if you're a, a Samuel scholar, you'll know in 12 verse 12 that they were fearful of attack from the Philistines. They wanted a commander too, so it's not simply wanting to blend in. But even in wanting a military commander, they show a lack of trust in God because in chapter 7 that we've not looked at, they were threatened by the Philistines. Um, 
They defeated them through prayer and through fasting and through confession and sacrifices and getting rid of false gods. The Lord defended them. You get this, get the Ebenezer rock that we sometimes sing of. They should have trusted him. They should have trusted the Lord. There's an irony that chapter 8 comes after chapter 7. Because in 7 you see the Lord can do it. In chapter 8 they think he can't. They want to blend in. We're meant to be different from the world. But here is the church wanting to look just like the world. And yet God gives them what they want. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord, and the Lord answered, listen to them, give them a king. And as we'll consider in a bit, it wasn't a good thing. So if you want, that's the problem with the king. That is fundamentally why this thing is flawed. What you get then in chapters 9 and 10 is essentially a a slow, drawn-out process of Saul being crowned as king. Um, We're going to be brief. There's quite a bit of story and narrative to get into. Um, We're going to slow down um, and zoom in on the bits that are key and important. And you might think, why is he slowing down on that bit? But hopefully as we tie it together and see it in the light of Christ then you'll understand why we slowed down. So trust me in this. Um, But we've got the choosing of the king now. 9 verse 1 to 10 verse 24. And as I say, there are kind of three sections. The first bit is, if you look down at chapter 9, essentially it is Saul being anointed in secret. So here we get Saul turning up on the scene. Slightly curiously, he is looking for donkeys. And we kind of think, what's going on there? Why, why is Saul looking for donkeys? What's going on? What's he doing? It's as if we're meant to note that. The donkeys sort of reappear again a few times. Um, and different people think different things on this. Some say it's as if he is a shepherd, but he's not a very good one. You know, he's not looking for sheep. He's looking for loud dopey donkeys and he's not doing actually a great job of finding them either you might know that um, shepherds were often sort of tied in with this idea of kingship and leadership we'll see that in um, in David in weeks to come Uh, David was not the not the last shepherd king whom we will encounter in the scriptures so maybe he's a sort of shepherd but just not a very good one Then actually some say, if you read the Bible carefully, you'll see donkeys, mules, asses, very often in the Bible at least, are are the beasts of kings. They are kingly animals, which sounds weird to us in our culture because we think donkeys, no, 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 they're, they're noisy and stupid. Kings have stallions, don't they? But let me just read you a little bit later from um, Solomon, two kings down the line. Um, King, this is 1 Kings 1, 33 to 34, if you're a note taker or want to zoom along to it. But, um, King David said, call in Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah son of Jehoiada. When they came before the king, he said to them, take your Lord's servants with you and put Solomon, my son, on my mule and take him to Gihon. There shall Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, anoint him king over Israel, blow the trumpet and shout, long live King Solomon. And if that's right, if, if that's right that... Kings are, are carried to and maybe even anointed on donkeys, mules. 
Well, firstly, we should be weaving in that into our understanding of Palm Sunday. Remember Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey? But secondly, as Saul is hunting down donkeys, then maybe it's a picture of those looking, of him hunting for royalty in one sense. It's a metaphor of what will happen for the rest of the chapter. As I say, different people think different things on this. Regardless, though, there is a switch that happens in verse 19 of chapter 9, where rather than Samuel telling Saul where the donkeys are, Samuel will tell Saul something much more important. Not where to find donkeys, but rather you are going to be a king. And if you zoom in on 15 to 17 of chapter 9, it, it feels like a slight aside We could do without them in one sense, but actually we just get a glimpse into God's perspective on what is going on. So verse 15, now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hands of the Philistines. I've looked at my people for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, this is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. And from there, we find ourselves at a feast. We see that there is food being served. We're kind of down to verse 22 and onwards. And I want to zoom in on the feast because I think it is a marriage feast. I'll try and persuade you of that and I'll try and help you see in a bit as well why that is important. Why do we say it's a marriage feast? Well, 9 verse 11, we've jumped over that bit but 9 verse 11 we see that Samuel or Saul sorry is at a well and he is speaking to women at a well they've been drawing water and they give Saul information about where Samuel is and if we're reading this with our bible glasses on we might be thinking ah love is in the air Because encounters with women at wells in the Bible, we're often meant to be thinking there's going to be a marriage in the future. They think back Genesis 24, Isaac marrying Rebekah. And here we, I know how it goes, Saul, he's at a well, he's chatting to women, and there we are, getting all excited, looking for our wedding invite, choosing a new hat, and nothing comes. And if you like, the narrative is just left hanging there for us. Why is there no wedding? You've kind of given us the code, and we're left scratching our heads. This is an unfulfilled well encounter. So maybe there's a hint there that we're expecting something else, and therefore the meal perhaps is a bit more kind of marriage-type meal. But more than that, when you get to King David, and he is, as we'll see in weeks to come, properly anointed as the king, The language the people use um, of him as their new king is this. They say, we are your bone and your flesh to their new king. 2 Sam 5. And maybe you're thinking, that sounds familiar. Because it sounds like Adam saying to Eve, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That is, this king of Israel is like a husband and And Israel is like the wife. 
And if you draw those two things together, you've got the kind of conversation at the world, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, actually nothing happens. And if you've got this idea of kings being seen as husbands, then here is a kind of marriage feast that happens. But it's not just a marriage feast. It is a priestly meal as well. Again, bear with me, and these things will all make sense as we draw them together. Verse 24, have a look. So the cook took up the thigh with what was on it and set it in front of Saul. Samuel said, here is what has been kept for you. Eat because it was set aside for you for this occasion. From the time I said I have invited guests and Saul dined with Samuel that day. And we'll be brief, but if you were to flip back to Leviticus 7, you would see there that the priests have a share of the thigh of the animal. And so it's as if we're meant to see, ah, Saul is kind of priestly. Saul is God's man for this time. The priest is anointed as the servant of the temple over the house of God. The king is to be anointed the servant of the people over the household of God. And all these themes from before Samuel are weaving together and we see them culminating here. It's as if this king is to have more than just a kingly role. More than just royal, it's as if they're to be a priest. The king is to be a priest as he leads the people. So that's the sort of anointing in secret stuff. And then you get three more, or you get confirmation by signs. And there are three signs in particular that confirm Saul as God's choice for this point. Again, have a look down at um, chapter 10 now. At 10 verse 2, the donkeys turn up. And if donkeys are these royal animals that we've suggested, then maybe here is the royal kingly sign being confirmed. And if you know your Bibles well, then you get, you get the reference at the slightly kind of random thing of Rachel's tomb there in 10 verse 2. Because we're reminded of Rachel in Genesis. She was married to Jacob. Just before Rachel died, the Lord promised to Jacob he would be the father of kings. So Rachel's tomb promises for kingship. That's Genesis 35. As if the author's saying, do you remember Rachel? Do you remember what the Lord promised to Jacob? Do you remember the kings that were promised? Well, here we go. Here is kingly confirmation of Saul. First sign. Second sign, 10 verse 3. Then you will go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to worship God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. You see what they're going to do? Verse 3, they are going up to worship God at Bethel. Why have they got loaves of bread? They are part of a sacrifice. They're going to worship God. They will be sacrificed. Here is a priestly sign. We've had a kingly sign, now a priestly sign, and maybe you've guessed the third sign. Verse 5. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of people coming down from the high place with lyres, tambourines, pipes, and harps being played there, and they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, Saul, and you will prophesy with them and be changed into a different person. And he becomes a different person, verse 6. It's as if the son of Kish has now become the son of Samuel. He's taken on the profession of his father. Prophetic confirmation. 
Three signs, three aspects of what this leadership will be. It's as if Saul is giving us the contours to understand kingship for the future. Confirmed by the Lord, prophet, priest, king. And then you get the public selection, 1017 um, to 27. So there's a secret bit, there's the signs bit, and then there's the kind of public selection bit. Um, It all zooms in on Saul by public lot, tribe by tribe, clan by clan, family by family. The The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And where is Saul, verse 22, hiding? He's hidden himself among the supplies. They ran and brought him out, and he stood among the people. He was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, do you, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There's no one like him among all the people. Why is he hiding something? Well, he's clearly humble. There's a meekness there. It's a positive thing, they say. Something, no, he's, there's a reluctance. There's a cowardice. It's a negative thing. Regardless, Saul is chosen, and Israel have the king they wanted. Israel have a king who will lead them against the Philistines. The Lord has provided for them the king they wanted. We've been really quick. But I want to ask the question now, what do these things mean for us? And I want to zoom in on, if you like, three applications from the text for us. To zoom right in and then zoom back out again. And to rethink the text in light of Christ, in light of Jesus. So let's just zoom in first in three applications. My clicker works. There he is. First question I think that springs from this passage for us is that do we ever reject the rule of God and yet still ask for his help? Isn't that striking? The people here in this section, as God knew they would, they reject his rule over them. But still they go to Samuel and they say, can we have a king, please? What is it? It's the 18-year-old who is ready to leave home, stand on their own two feet, do things by themselves. They reject their parents, but they bring their washing back each weekend. And they just pop back to raid the fridge when they know their parents won't be in. And they still want an allowance. They don't want the authority of their parents anymore. They're not willing to do things their way anymore, but they still want stuff from them. A few parents with older kids nodding their heads, um, a bit awkward. Anyway, (laughs) it's a little bit like, isn't it, the younger brother and the prodigal son. He, He doesn't want his father. He wants his father's money. He doesn't want a relationship. He just wants his stuff. While so the people of God here reject God but they still want him to provide stuff for them. And so we ask God to help us and to bless us with that thing, perhaps even though we've never really asked him if we should have that thing, or whether that thing maybe we know in our heart of hearts is a wrong thing. God, you can be my saviour, you really can, but I don't really want you as my, my lord so much. I want you to give me stuff, please, but we'll do things my way, okay? Well, so here is Israel rejecting God, but still asking for his help. There's one question for home groups this week. The second one, and I've wrestled with this this week, 
But sometimes the Lord answers our prayers, and so we need to be careful what we ask for. And it's frightening, isn't it? Sometimes he does this. He gives us what our hearts want, because he wants to teach us that the things that our hearts want are not good for us. They are bad for us. He wants to train us and to discipline us even, as he gives us what we ask for. And so we need to say we must be careful in what we pray for. We must be careful in what our hearts chase after, the things that bend us. Because he might give it to us and they might not be pretty. There was a similar idea a couple of um, years ago when we were going through Numbers. Do you remember the people rescued from suffering and slavery? They were whining in the wilderness on their way to the land. And the Lord said to Moses, The Lord heard you when you wailed, if only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five, ten or twenty, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. God says, you, you want meat? I'll give you meat. I'll give you more meat than you know what to do with. And I'll give you what you want, and you will learn a lesson from that. And we fast forward to Romans 1. And Paul says there's a similar pattern going on in the world as God at times gives people over to the rebellion that they long for. He gives them over to their desires. Rather than restraining us in our foolishness, he lets us off the leash. And away we go and we think we're free and we run after all these things that we think will make us happy. We, We love them and we worship them, but actually we become like them and they dehumanize us and they enslave us. And so I think we need to say from this account, be careful what you pray for. Be careful what your heart runs after. I take it usually he restrains us. But at times he will give us what we want so that we see it is not what we need. And I think then the third question, again, we've just touched on that, so battered around in home groups, please do pray and think and consider. The third one, though, is what criteria for leadership do we use? I don't think it's reading too much back into the account to say it, but it is striking that Saul's physical description is mentioned a number of times in this passage, and actually throughout the book. So you get it in the beginning nine, verse two. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. 10 verse 23, they ran and brought him out, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Israel has asked for a king like the nations, a mighty military ruler to look after them, to protect them. And so God gives them a king like the nations. That's the kind of king you want? You can have that kind of king. And so he is tall and he is handsome. David, as we'll see um, in weeks to come, is described as being a man after God's own heart. Saul is never described in that way. It's always external. For David, it's internal. Which again just gives us the opportunity to think through what we value in leadership. I will say more as we reach David in a couple of weeks. Um, But we must not think about leadership as the world thinks about leadership. Too often, I think, in church circles, um, it is only ever about gifting 
that we look for? Are they impressive or eloquent or persuasive or gifted? That's the first thing we go for. And often there's very little about character, faithfulness, internal. There's too much about external. Those things are important. Read Titus and Timothy. But actually the internal perhaps is even more important. So we've zoomed in. And again, I've just kind of picked at scabs. So I'd love you to consider them um, this next week. Um, to think about them, to pray about them, to discuss them. But I want to zoom right back as well. We've seen the problem with the king. We've seen the choosing of the king. Now I want to show you the true king, Jesus. I've been so struck by this passage that, that, that it's just crying out for him. It's painful. I want to show you, I think there's loads, but actually just four, four reasons why this passage just, is just longing for Jesus. The arrows are just pointing ahead. We are, we're not satisfied till we find him. The first one is that he is the truly adopted son. See if you can follow this. So Samuel, do you remember, was adopted by Eli. Saul, then adopted by Samuel. We'll see that today. He kind of becomes like his new father. He becomes a prophet, taking on the, the role of his new father in one sense. Now, as the story progresses, we'll see in one sense David is adopted by Saul. But then here's where it gets exciting. 2 Samuel 7, the pages are turning. God makes a promise to David, and he says, I will adopt one of your offspring. He is the one I will who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. A Davidic king, in one sense, adopted by the Lord forever. Jesus, the truly adopted son. The second one. Jesus, the true husband married to his people. Do you see, if that marriage stuff was right then you get with both Saul and David this glimpse of the king being the groom and the people being the bride and it's a kind of hazy glimpse but it's clarified as the pages turn in the scriptures and so Jesus comes with talk of him being the bridegroom to God's people or Paul says husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her or at the very end, John, who says, well, I saw a wedding, a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Jesus is the true bridegroom. The bridegroom who always gets it right. The bridegroom who pours himself out for his people. History ends with a wedding. He loves her. He's also the true prophet, priest, and king. We've seen this in previous weeks, but I think Saul, as we've said, sets the contours for our understanding of what kingship ought to be. Remember there was the 
The three confirmations of signs. The prophetic, the priestly, and the kingly. Giving us the, the way of thinking about what the true king ought to be. The thing to look for. The meeting together of these three elements. He is the prophet who will truly speak the Lord's words. Who is indeed God's word himself. He is the priest, the anointed one who who will come and perfectly represent us to God and God to us, and not just the priest, but even the sacrifice for his people. And he is the king, the Messiah, the Christ, the one who rules the people of God, but not like the king of the nations. Because he's the true king. He's the true king who gives. Jesus is the theocracy reunited again. God directly ruling his people again. Man and God, human and divine. God himself ruling, loving, serving, pouring himself out for his people. He is not the king who who takes, 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 takes. He's not the king who selfishly demands from his people, as Israel's kings did. He is the one who gives. And he gives and he gives and he pours himself out for his people. He is the king that we long for. He is the only king to serve. I say we're going to pray to him now. And then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. As we remember our king who pours himself out, who gives himself to people like us. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we we thank you for the privilege of living this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection. Thank you that you are the only king worth following. Thank you that you are not a king who, who takes, 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 but a king who gives, a king who loves, a king who pours himself out for undeserving people like us. Lord, we pray that we might rightly learn the lessons from accounts like this. That we might ask those questions of the way that we do things. We, we recognize all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. And yet we thank you that when we get it wrong, we have a king who pours himself out for us. In his precious name we pray. Amen.